0: Whoa!
2: Glory to Jesus Christ, welcome to
1: Light of the East, I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. This is the third Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, which of course is the Sunday of the veneration of the Holy Cross, a very, very magnificent Sunday, the midpoint of Lent. And we've spoken about that before on our program, and we'll come back to it again maybe another time. I just wanted to mention that because it is a big day for us in this midpoint of Lent. We have a big procession with the cross. It's richly decorated. We bow before it. We sing. It's a very triumphant day because it's trying to encourage us to get through the rest of Lent. In other words, the cross becomes a bit of a banner, a symbol of victory for us. Later on, of course, during Holy Week, just as they do in the Latin Rite Church, the western lung of the church. We, of course, focus on the the suffering of Christ, his redemptive suffering and death on the cross, and very, very mournful melodies and prayers and so on. But this Sunday, we raise that cross, richly decorated as a banner of triumph, to goad us on through the rigors of the fast, to let us know that there is a point to all this, a positive destiny to the rigors of the fast and all of our repentance. As I mentioned, we'll come back to that maybe another time, because there is something else, perhaps more pressing. It is in the sense that it's historical. We mentioned it last week because it was happening, but now it has happened, and we're going to look at it for a bit. That is called the historic meeting between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, this meeting was very, very significant for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's historical. The Pope has never met privately with a Russian Orthodox patriarch. And so, this was historical just for that reason. The two churches have had very, very strained relationships for a long, long time. Many popes have tried to repair those relationships, but it's been difficult. There's been progress with the most recent popes, and particularly Pope Francis, to the point where, fortunately, they held this historic meeting. So, it was important from the standpoint of history and also of ecumenism, ecumenism actually means, now we have to be very specific, ecumenism actually means religious dialogue between the sacramental churches. In other words, the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. That's really the strict meaning of the word ecumenism, because ecumen, it has to do with the Greek variation of the words that mean home or from the same house. So the two lungs of the church, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches, of course, together with the Eastern Catholic Churches, come from the same house, meaning from that sacramental Eucharistic apostolic foundation. So this is what really ecumenism actually means. Now, the meaning also was multi-layered and surrounded with a lot of political speculation, perhaps, as some might say, political motivations. One of the reasons for that is because in the eastern lung of the church, it is very difficult and especially this is the case with Russia and the church in Russia, it is very difficult to separate out the church from the state, the church from the culture. The Russian Orthodox Church in particular was infiltrated during the days of Soviet communism by atheistic communists. And to this day, it still has a lot of connection and influence and even pressure by the current government in Russia, especially under Vladimir Putin. In fact, Patriarch Kirill, the Russian Orthodox Church, is a spiritual advisor to Vladimir Putin. And so, in looking at the motivation behind this meeting, at least on the part of the Russian Orthodox, there are many observers who believe that there were motives other than just purely motives of church unity. In fact, there's one particular individual. His name is George Samakopoulos, and he is the Greek Orthodox Chairman of Orthodox Christian Studies at Fordham University in New York. And what he's saying is that it is almost entirely about Kirill, this meaning, about his posturing and trying to present himself as the leader of orthodoxy. Now, the reason why Mr. Demakopoulos would say this is somewhat understandable. Well, first of all, he's a scholar, so he's speaking from that standpoint. They tend to be rather honest about things as they see them, but also because the Greek Orthodox patriarch, Patriarch Bartholomew, has made great strides in his relationship with the Pope of Rome. And there is this tension or battle (laughs) between the two, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch and the Greek Orthodox Patriarch, for the place of so-called primacy among the Orthodox Patriarchs. The Russian Orthodox Patriarch doesn't want it to seem as though the Greek Orthodox Patriarch is, well more prime than he is. <laughs> so there is a, a there is a kind of a perception of a posturing here that's happening, at least from this source. Other sources also say this, and this I'm taking from the words of the major archbishop, Sheptuslov Sheptuk of Kiev halych He is the major archbishop for the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church throughout the world, and he does not expect the meeting will bring any particular changes because he says this, quote, The meeting cannot be an end in itself, but must rather be an instrument, a necessary means for honest and open dialogue. He added that he is pleased to see this meeting happening. However, he does have reservations as did our other source, Mr. Demakopoulos. So there's a number of people looking at this from different levels, and they're looking at it in terms of some political layers as well. Now, again, I have to emphasize that these are observers, and they're observing the Russian Orthodox Church in light of its connectedness, or perhaps even being under the thumb, of the government of Russia, especially of Vladimir Putin. And again, this is not a position we're taking pro or con or lay the east, we're simply reporting how this is being perceived. Because this meeting is important and it's important to see it from many levels so that we understand the situations in the church in ecumenism, especially between East and West. We understand what's behind it. You know, what's underneath it, why these churches are split apart, what their motivations are, how to bring them back together. We have to look at it from 360 degrees or from top to bottom and all the different layers, whether we want to or not, that's the reality. So there, there are those that feel that the Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill is simply and mostly posturing. Also because there is a pan-Orthodox council that is planned for a few months from now. And this would be the first time that the, all the Orthodox churches are getting together in a form of a, a council. It actually hasn't happened in hundreds of years. And the Orthodox churches realize that they need this to happen. And Patriarch Kirill wants to come to that council with the appearance that he is just as close to the Pope of Rome, in terms of dialogue, as his counterpart, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch Bartholomew. In other words, he doesn't want to look like he's second place. In fact, for a long time now, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch in Moscow, they have claimed that they are the new Rome, which would make it about the third or fourth Rome. <laughs> there was Rome itself, of course, going back in history. There was the Constantinople, which was the new Rome. Then there is, of course, Moscow. But Moscow did not precede the area of Kiev, where the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholics believe that that is their origin, and that's where their leader ought to be. Kiev basically came under the influence of the Soviets, but the idea is that there were basically three Romes, and Moscow sees itself as the third Rome. In other words, they see themselves as the latest and greatest of the cities, the seas, the seas of a patriarch in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Before it was Constantinople. Later on, of course, it's now modern-day Istanbul. But now they believe, the Russians believe that it's Moscow, that it's Russia. Indeed, Russia does have the largest population in terms of membership of the Orthodox churches in the world. Greek Orthodox have a lot of population as well, but the Russian Orthodox probably outnumber them. So the Russian Orthodox patriarch is going to see his church as perhaps first among equals among Orthodox churches. So yes, there is, by many observers, a certain amount of posturing going on here. And as I mentioned, to understand this, we have to look at the Eastern churches, and especially in this case, the Russian Orthodox church, in light of not just the church itself, But the church has intermingled, overlapped, sometimes under the tyranny of the government there. And this goes back a long way. The Russian Orthodox Church has had a history, a long history, of being connected with the government and oftentimes being a victim of the government, whether it was the Tsar or the Soviets or now even Mr. Putin. So we have to look at it very holistically. And finally, because of the intertwining, overlapping of the Russian Orthodox Church with the government, It could also be that the Russian Orthodox Patriarch is trying to bolster the image of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government in the world, and doing so by means of becoming more friendly with the Pope of Rome. As many of us know, if you watch the news, Russia is very involved in the Middle East in the war there, and they're taking criticism by the West. Also, they've taken criticism by their incursions in the Crimea and areas that belong to Ukraine. And that brings up another very important issue, and that is the issue of the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church, especially in that area of the world. So there are many complex layers to this meeting, and it makes it very significant for that regard, but also, most importantly, in terms of its ecumenical value, its theological value. In other words, what Jesus Christ has to do with all of this. And we'll talk about that when we return. I'm Father Thomas
2: Loya on Light of the East.
1: Hi, I am Father Thomas Lawyer and I have a special invitation for the ladies. If you are seeking greater happiness in your marriage or just greater perfection in your own personal lives, then come to the 4th Annual Women's Retreat Friday to Sunday, March 4th to the 6th at the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation Retreat Center in Cary, Ohio. Greater perfection is a theme for this retreat, which I will be directing based upon the writings of Blessed Sister Miriam Teresa Demianovich, the first person to be declared blessed on American soil. To find out more and to register, call Joan at 419-798-9107. 419-798-9107. 419-798-9107. Or email Joan at washburn.joan5 at gmail.com. That's washburn.joan5 at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you there. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. No.
2: Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We talked about some of the other layers of the meeting between the Patriarch of Russia, Patriarch Kirill, and also the Pope of Rome, Pope Francis. And we do so to help understand ever more deeply and more completely the whole story of dialogue, ecumenical dialogue between Rome and the Orthodox churches, in this case, the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, let's look at what they actually agreed upon, what they actually said together. And they did this in a declaration, which they both signed. It's a joint declaration of Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of Moscow and all of Russia. And in this document, they agreed on certain things that you might expect that they would agree on. In fact, one of the reasons spiritually, now we're going to get on the spiritual theological level, the level of ultimately of Jesus Christ, which of course is what unity is all about, being one in Christ. As you might expect, they came together together. With the similar concerns of the persecution of Christians, the moral relativism, and I'd like to say that these are two sides of the same vice that is crushing and squeezing Christianity, whether it's East or West. On the one vice, it's radical Islam and the persecution of Christians in so many parts of the world. The other side of the vice is moral relativism. And both of the lungs of the church, East and West, despite all their other disagreements whatever else they might say about each other or against each other, in the end, they both know that they're facing formidable enemies and they have to come together to fight them together. And this has happened before in the church. In church history, there are times when the Eastern churches look to the West, especially during the Crusades. It looked to the Pope of Rome, to the West, to help fortify them when Islam was taking over the Holy Lands, in those parts of the world where the Eastern churches are. That, of course, was during the time of the Crusades. So, there is other points of history where East and West look towards each other, particularly East look towards the West. So, once again, it's happening here. On this time, they're looking really towards each other. They know they need each other's riches. They need to be a house united in order to fight these very, very formidable enemies. In fact, in the Declaration itself. There's some couple lines there that will really give you pause for reflection. It says here, and this is in section 28 of the document, it says "This world, in which the spiritual pillars of human existence are progressively disappearing, awaits from us a compelling Christian witness in all spheres of personal and social life. Much of the future of humanity will depend on our capacity to give shared witness to the spirit of truth in these difficult times. It also says there, in the contemporary world, which is both multiform yet united by a shared destiny, Catholics and Orthodox are called to work together fraternally in proclaiming the good news of salvation, to testify together to the moral dignity and authentic freedom of the person, so that the world may believe, John 17, 21. But I found those words to be very chilling. This world, and they actually wrote it in this document and agreed to it. This world in which the spiritual pillars of human existence are progressively disappearing awaits from us a compelling Christian witness in all spheres of personal and social life. So they're admitting that we're in trouble, as many of us probably think and sense But here are these two great leaders, which, again, testifies to what I believe is one of the motivations for this meeting, is that they realize that they they can't fight this very well as separated brethren. They have to come together in unity. Now, they also said, too, that they are mindful of the permanence of many obstacles. It is our hope that our meeting may contribute to the reestablishment of this unity willed by God, for which Christ prayed. May our meeting inspire Christians throughout the world to pray to the Lord with renewed fervor for the full unity of all his disciples in a world which yearns not only for our words, but also for tangible gestures. May this meeting be a sign of hope for all people of goodwill. Our Christian conscience and our pastoral responsibility compel us not to remain passive in the face of challenges requiring a shared response. We exhort all Christians and all believers of God to pray fervently to the providential creator of the world to protect his creation from destruction and not permit a new world war. In order to ensure solid and enduring peace, specific efforts must be undertaken to rediscover the common values uniting us based on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see here in written, in this document, this joint document signed by both leaders of the church, we see this concern this observation and this mutual conclusion that the world is in trouble. that We're facing formidable enemies, and we've got to come together. Now, also in this document, they mentioned, and for anyone who maybe perhaps sometimes maybe <laughs> wonders or even doubts what Pope Francis might be saying along the lines of marriage and family, here in section 20 of the document, it says this. Now remember, this is a document that the two leaders agreed upon and signed. It's called the Joint Declaration. It says this. The family is based on marriage, an act of freely given and fraternal love between a man and a woman. It is love that seals their union and teaches them to accept one another as a gift. Marriage is a school of love and faithfulness. We regret that other forms of cohabitation have been placed on the same level as this union, while the concept consecrated in the biblical tradition of paternity and maternity as a distinct vocation of man and woman in marriage is being banished from the public conscience. Let me to read that again. We regret that other forms of cohabitation have been placed on the same level as this union, while the concept, consecrated in the biblical tradition of paternity and maternity as the distinct vocation of man and woman in marriage, is being banished from the public conscience. So, an affirmation for traditional marriage and a condemnation of that which is not according to traditional marriage, again, jointly signed by both leaders the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Pope of Rome. Then they caution about other Christian civilizations that must try to remain faithful. In section 16, it says this, While remaining open to the contribution of other religions to our civilization, it is our conviction that Europe must remain faithful to its Christian roots. We call upon Christians of Eastern and Western Europe to unite in their shared witness to Christ and the gospel, so that Europe may preserve its soul, shaped by 2,000 years of Christian tradition. Now, this document is very positive. I'm just reading some of the things that might seem negative or prophetic or warnings. And that's important because what it's showing, again, it's it's underlining this idea that the two leaders have come together. All the politics and everything aside, they certainly come together. And it's very clear. They come together with a clear sense of what is pressing in on Christian civilization today, and they have to come together to try and fight it together. Now, one of the key points in this document also, which is a key point in the whole discussion of ecumenism, is the place of churches like mine, the Eastern Catholic churches. In section 25, it says this, it is our hope that our meaning may also contribute to reconciliation wherever tensions exist between Greek Catholics, or in other words, Eastern Catholics, and Orthodox. It is today clear that the past method of unitism, understood as a union of one community to the other, separating it from its church, is not the way to re-establish unity. Nonetheless, the ecclesial communities which emerged in these historical circumstances have the right to exist and to undertake all that is necessary to meet the spiritual needs of their faithful while seeking to live in peace with their neighbors. Orthodox and Greek Catholics are in need of reconciliation and of mutually acceptable forms of coexistence. Whenever we ask the question, as is often asked of me, what are the issues that divide the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church? The two biggest issues are the place of the Pope, his primacy, his infallibility, his universal jurisdiction. And secondly, the place and existence of churches like mine, the Eastern Catholic Churches. These churches are what they are, really, are they're parts of the Eastern Orthodox churches that reunited with Rome starting in the 15th and 16th centuries. And the Orthodox believe that that was like being a traitor. It was as if a child sneaked out of their father's home and they went to live with the neighbors, and then the parents woke up and only to find their children gone, living with the neighbors, and the neighbors approving of it. That's what they accuse Rome of. They accuse Rome of proselytizing, of enticing parts of their own churches, of their people over the centuries, to come over to the Catholic Church. Well, the people that did that, the Eastern Catholics, really didn't think that they were breaking away from their parents' home. They just thought they were joining together the two homes, the homes of their home and the home of their neighbor. They never really thought that they were breaking away from their original patriarch. They were simply reuniting like the way it was before the Great Schism in 1054 AD. So we've got a lot of work to do in terms of the relationship between the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. But everything else aside, surely this meaning, this historic meaning between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church was a very big step towards the direction of unity. But once again, as St. John Paul II would say, the Church will truly breathe completely with both its lungs, East and West. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
2: To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes, Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.